Welcome to episode 28 of the HS Health Tech Podcast. My name's James, one of the founders of HS, and with me this week, I've got Max Parmentier, who is the CEO and founder of Birdie, which I'll explain in a second. So Max is a seasoned and very passionate social entrepreneur. He's driven by purpose, driven by meaning, and has got this real sort of desire to serve. He's previously worked on climate change, he's worked on deforestation, he's worked on the prevention of Ebola, AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria for the Global Fund. He previously raised $50 million um, to build what he describes as the Amazon for Global Aid, which managed to get drugs to people cheaper and faster. And then he got into ageing. So he believes that every adult deserves to age healthily and with dignity at home. And so he built Birdie, which uses tech to provide companionship and support. So Max's goal is to help one million elderly people in the next five years. And in terms of the problem to solve, he describes aging as the new climate change. So... Max raised $7 million Series A recently, um, so they are hiring, and you can hear more about that in the podcast. Um, But what they're doing is they're kind of optimizing getting older. They're working on this paradigm that essentially getting older might mean a decrease in function, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're ill or unwell. And so they're tackling stigma and this kind of over-medicalization of getting older and they're trying to normalize support and help for people as they get older to kind of top up their decrease in function. Um, It's really interesting space that they're in. Um, Max is a super interesting guy. Um, Really enjoyed the podcast. So as always, if you want to get in touch with us and give us some feedback, uh, get in touch at HSVenture on Twitter, hs.ventures on Instagram, um, and you can visit our website at hs.ventures. I will just kick off then by saying, Max, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thank you so much. Enjoying the beautiful weather in London. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not so beautiful weather today. It's quite overcast. Yeah, absolutely. We were deceived by, you know, the very mild temperature. Now it's dropped again. So, uh, yeah. I know last weekend was absolutely glorious, wasn't it? Uh, um, absolutely. Yeah. Everybody thought it was a summer and we're back on, you know, the, the <laughs> typical London weather. We've been deceived. <laughs> it's funny. So 20% of our listeners are actually out in the US, probably experiencing a lot better West Coast weather than we are at the moment. <laughs> um, but we digress already. Um, so Max, for our listeners, I know that we've had a quick phone call before where you've sort of told me a little bit about your background, which sounds like super fascinating so for the benefit of our listeners why don't you tell us your story yeah no absolutely uh, and with pleasure and, and thanks for the invite um my story is really a, a background in public and private uh, uh corporations organizations or sectors um and and it started off really with a passion for social innovation i've been always you know committed to try to find solutions uh, through new organization models or technology to crack uh, societal issues I, I think it's just so cool it gives me a, a lot of purpose and meaning um and so i i basically i come i'm come from belgium i studied in belgium in the US. Um, I worked for, for McKinsey, which is a, an American consulting firm for four years, um, where I did a few things. But for the last two years, I worked on uh, their resource uh, and sustainability uh, practice, which is really focusing on, on fight against climate change. And I became one of the uh, world experts in, in fight against deforestation, particularly. Um, and so I traveled across the world, particularly in Africa, to you know, help countries and governments uh, design the strategy to fight against deforestation, which is one of the greatest source of uh, CO2 emission. Uh, and because climate change was very dear to my heart at the time. Um, then I, I, I left uh, McKinsey and I joined a few startups to work on, on um, uh, prevention of Ebola in, in West Africa. Uh, but then I really landed on, in Geneva, where I worked for the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, which is the largest uh, global health organization in the world. Uh, it's basically an organization that disperses $4 billion per year in 140 countries. So it's really a lot of money to fight against these diseases. 
And there I did a few things again, but then one day my, my CEO, with whom I'm very close still, um, called me and said, listen, Max, um, we're giving all this money to these countries, um, but then the purchase of drugs uh, through Chinese manufacturers, there's a lot of agencies taking a cut and commissions out of these purchases. It's highly inefficient as a process. Why don't we build a big Amazon.com for global aid? Um, and so we have to do another fundraising for this uh, global health organization next year um, at the World Economic Forum at Davos. Um, here is $15 million. You know, you can take as much as you want out of the envelope. Uh, by the way, Bill Gates, uh, the American government and the UK government paid a bit of that as well. Um, and you've got a year and a half to deliver this platform, which will help countries to source directly via an Amazon.com experience. So I Log in as you know, a government of Zimbabwe. I uh, order 60 million bet nets, and I want them to be in my port of entry within the next uh, three months. And so that was a fascinating experience in terms of social entrepreneurship, for the very reason that I could see a lot of frictions in in global health, um, but we would actually address one of these frictions with technology and, and a really cool model, which is you know, a pool procurement platform. We would source the drugs directly from the manufacturers, um, ensure the quality was right, build a digital experience, engage with the different countries. And then eventually, you know, they would get the drugs for cheaper, faster, and we would save about, um, you know, we, we're talking about $50 million of savings now uh, per year. And that's about 100,000 additional uh, patients treated. That's really got me excited into social entrepreneurship to say, well, hey, you know, by using technology, we can have such a massive social impact. Uh, and that's really exciting. So that was my, my really second vertical. The first one was climate change. The second one was uh, um, global health. And then I, I got excited about aging because I realized it was also a big societal crisis. And I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg at this stage. I call it the new climate change. Um, I think across the world, um, particularly in Western Europe, uh, we see the, the tension points of uh, an aging population and what it will involve as a society. Um, and so I, I really wanted to address that as as a next topic of you know how can a new model address some issues and, and solve some of these issues um, I pitched my idea uh, to a few people um, and got into the startup studio of AXA called uh, Kamets um, where they said well this is really exciting let's build this um, this is a you know, seed funding, off you go. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we basically hired a few guys, uh, worked on a prototype, uh, had a pilot that worked well. Um, and then we actually uh, raised our series A last year and now we're just scaling. And I, I guess I'll describe further what's, what's the product and what we're doing, but really the, the intention here is to say, well, every older adult deserves to be aging um, at home. And, and our thesis is that care homes are not the right place to, to age. Um, as as healthy as possible and it's really a huge potential to help all the adults to age much better uh, and uh, in much better health uh, much longer do you know what's quite funny max so before i do these podcasts what i do is i i research people and i write in my notebook like pages of notes right and i've got an entire page on your background and you've literally rattled through the entire thing in literally like five minutes <laughs> so like i've literally got nothing left to ask you but I, what i am going to do is is go back over it and and try and summarize a bit of that because you've you, you've brushed over what is a, a superbly diverse and interesting background which actually led you down a kind of a social innovation route and i think the first thing that really interested me in what you said there was was one of the very first things you said, which is that you're driven by purpose and meaning. Has that always been the case with you? Have you always sort of woke up in the morning needing something to do from a purpose and meaning perspective? Has it never really been about financial reward for you? Has it always been that kind of motivation? And if so, where do you think that's come from? Uh, so that's a very, very good question. Yes, it's always been there. Um, and by the way, I have no arrogant so i'm not bragging about that i think really everyone has his own driver and i'm not judgmental towards anyone i i think however that we have a societal duty i think that citizenship goes through caring for the community but we can talk about that later um yeah i recall you know when i was 12 i i was involved in a local charity and i became the president of the charity when i was 16 uh 17 i launched in my school a uh, a basically a, a non-for-profit 
website within my high school, which was quite a large high school in Brussels, um, to make people aware of, of development issues uh, in, in Africa. And, and we, yeah, I mean, always that. I, I did like internships in, in Bolivia at the UNDP for the vice presidency. Then I went to Uganda, where I was actually northern Uganda in an area uh, where rebels from Joseph Kony were actually shooting everywhere. I had to hide under a bed in like a family for two weeks. I mean, um, I can tell you war stories, but I've been always involved and always passionate about, you know, what can we do and how can I serve? And, and, the, and it some, sounds a bit biased, but, but it's really, you know, something that's been a driver for me. Um, and, and to your question, you know, financial reward, um, I think my, my threshold, I, I want to live well and I want my family eventually to will live well as well. But I, I don't believe that money as a driver is, is, so, uh, is so compelling or, or fulfilling. And I really believe that, you know, and I think that there is also a lot of scientific evidence of that, that you, at some point when you, if you achieve your utility point, uh, the curve is flattening and the more money doesn't help. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in London, I, I live well, I can eat whatever I want, I got a decent apartment, uh, it's fine. Um, so, so I think that's a little bit how I look at it. Now, in terms of where does it come from, I think you have people who have a nat natural empathy, and I call it the uh, the, the homeless test. Um, walk with a friend, pass you know in the street, and you see a homeless person on the floor. Um, two people will have a very different reaction to that. I, I know that naturally, I will. Uh, resonate emotionally with that person and I will say hi or something. I will not give money every time, but I know it will make me feel something. Whereas I have, you know, plenty of friends who actually just do not react at all. It's completely indifferent. And I think that's just who you are and, and how much compassion uh, you have. And it's not good or bad. It's just the nature of who we are. That's really interesting. And I totally agree. Um, and I, I really like the, well, first of all, it, it's not only just that, responsibility element you're you're taking a leadership role almost within that it seems that that through your be it your upbringing or you know genetics plus environment whatever it is that's, that's led to you being you know so so driven by purpose and meaning you've also just then taken these leadership roles whenever you could you know you said there like even when you were at school you were trying to be leader of the class to do these different things and I guess the next bit that, that really fascinates me there is, is just your kind of internationalism, if that's a term, you know, the fact that, you know, you say you're born in Belgium and, and even in the, what, 11 minutes we've been talking now, you've probably mentioned like seven or eight different countries that you've worked in and done something very meaningful in. Yeah. Have you always been a traveler? Is that a family thing? Is that because, you know, again, seeing so many cultures, seeing so many walks of life, seeing how so many people live, and how differently people live around the world is definitely going to help breed that responsibility within you, right? It's going to help. It's definitely going to allow that kind of social responsibility to grow because you will literally be seeing people at, at, within all walks of life at, at the ends of, at, of poverty by the sounds of it. Yeah. Um, these are many questions and fascinating questions. Um, no, it's not a family thing. Um, several times my mother looked at me and said, listen, these are great ideas, but I can't help you. Good luck because this is new to us. I mean, my family, you know, is from Belgium. Has been from you know in Belgium for for, for decades, and and uh, no, it's not it's not family background to travel a lot and and to live abroad. Um, uh, to some extent, and so I think it was just curiosity really curiosity to say, well, you know, kind of the citizen of the world concept when you're young and a student and you just want to discover the world and it's easy. You just take a backpack and take the cheapest flight wherever that is. And then you just, you know, off you go and, and you take the cheapest hostel and, and, and you travel around and you discover countries and then you realize, you know, there's things that's so different. Um, and, and that there's so much excitement in, in building, you know, bonds with, totally different cultures and in the end you know there's something that relates uh, with us and that we all citizens of the world and again it's a bit cheesy but really when you're young i think you resonate with that and then combined with i really loved africa and i traveled quite a lot in africa 
And, and I think that culture um, of uh, the present moment was really strong with me um, compared to our kind of neoliberal societies where we're always, always projecting what we want to do, where we want to be, what's the career we should have, what are the expectations of us in the future and so on. Um, precarity is so important over there that in the end, life and death are part of everyday life. And so you live the present moment and then, you know, your neighbor might die because you know, prevalence of, of death is actually much higher. Uh, but then there's a wedding and that's great news. And, and, and I really um, got into that concept of present living and, and you know, uh, ups and downs of life, which are so stronger in Africa. And, and that really made me resonate also with the need to actually support, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people in Africa who don't have even access to the basics of, you know, global health or, or you know, getting them out of poverty. And, and I really realized also the discrepancy through these travels between, you know, all sometimes trivial and superfluous, uh, really shallow uh, needs back here in, in, in the Western world and what these guys were looking for. And for me, that discrepancy didn't make sense, right? I mean, if we acknowledge that we're all from the same species, we're all humans, how come I'm going to be, you know, looking forward to buy my next iPhone X, which costs a thousand pounds, and a thousand pounds is actually the price of a treatment, uh, a malaria treatment for an entire year for a child in Africa. And that really, again, I think is back to empathy and compassion. I just don't get it. I just can't square that equation. I just don't get it. So yeah, that's how I got into it. I can remember, you know, when I was traveling and I can, I can almost remember the moment where that all just sort of got blown open for me as well. That, that, as you say, that, that absolute discrepancy between the classic modern Western world way of living versus, you know, how lots and lots of different people live. I, I remember I came back from, um, I can't remember whether it was Central America or Asia. It was one of them. But I can remember when I landed um, and one of my friends texted me really excited because the new iOS meant that you could text yeah. in landscape. And I can just remember landing and, and opening this message on my phone and just this overwhelming sense of like, I could not care less. Like mm. given what I've just seen, given, given the, the, the conditions that I've just seen people living in and all these different things. Right? And it was, it, it's a conflicting message in your head because at the same time, you know, only weeks earlier before I left, that would have been the most exciting thing in the world for me. Yeah, uh, but it just, it just gives you so much perspective, I guess. No, and I, I think you're right. It's almost a philosophical question as well, um, which is really, um, and, and I really, you know, adhere to that. That's basically our society, um, is struggling with a sense of meaning and purpose. And, and we see that a lot, I think, with the younger generations as well. Um, and I think you know, people are trying to find a sense of meaning and purpose through different channels today. Um, I think religion was one in the past. Now there's you know, kind of a plenty of new things that, that could give that kind of meaning. But eventually, uh, I think it goes down to the recognition that we need a purpose and we need meaning in what we do because otherwise we feel completely useless. And I see that through the people who apply in our company and say, well, it's part of my, you know, drivers is to do something that serves a purpose. It's also part of, you know, the older adults that we serve and saying, when I retire and I'm just in a care home, I'm so useless to society that I let it go and, I'm, you know, I'd rather die. So I think that's really inherent to who we are as humans is to have a sense of purpose and meaning. And, and I think we've lost track a little bit of that you know you know highly developed and, and rich societies and that's where we see also a crisis among some of us to say well where can i find that meaning mm. but that's a philosophical question more than you know a <laughs> yeah and i think it seems to me that you were always destined to end up in health tech and unfortunately i'm going to gloss over the the climate change and deforestation <laughs> elements of your story even though i will probably give you another call to ask you about that in more detail but let's then move the story on to when you then get into your first kind of views of health and you you did stuff on the prevention of ebola um aids tb malaria for the global fund were you kind of bitten by the health bug then could you i guess matching this kind of sense of um purpose and meaning with seeing those things i imagine that fostered a desire to really get into innovating within health 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think what really excited me, and I think is a little bit related to climate change, but even more powerful in health, is the opportunity with technology, with innovation and progress to radically transform uh, um, you know, society and really impact positively people. Um, and you don't have so many industries or verticals or areas we can have such an impact. And health was one. Um, so in Global Health before um, at the Global Fund, where, you know, you, as I said, you're just working on, on f just cool innovation uh, uh, initiatives which can completely transform uh, the way we deliver uh, health to, to developing countries and the impact was massive. I mean, really thousands, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of people benefiting from extra um, health support and care. But now at, at Birdie in what we do, I, I see that in terms of health tech potential. And, and there are a few companies working on that area, of course, but the potential to actually significantly improve uh, the healthcare delivered because it's more accurate, because it's much more uh, accessible, uh, because it's much more preventative, because it's much more tailored. Um, that has tremendous potential mm -hmm. and that's really exciting. Unscalable. Unscalable. So let's talk about Birdie then. So tell me what Birdie is. In fact, tell me, start with the idea. So when did you have the idea for Birdie? How did you turn that idea into reality? And then tell me a little bit more about the product and what it actually looks like from a sort of a customer patient point of view. Yeah, absolutely. So Birdie, we, we started actually three years ago, but 10 years ago, a bit less, 80 years ago. Um, aging as an issue really came into my life because my, my, my grandmother passed away. Um, my granddad had Parkinson um, and we decided as a family to actually uh, place him in a care home um, because we, th we thought he wouldn't be independent enough to actually live alone at home. And that was the greatest mistake we could have made. And I think, you know, we made that choice and that's it. But he rapidly declined and eight months later he, he, he died. Um, because he was extremely unhappy in that care home because he was completely lost, had lost all his landmarks. And so he, he declined cognitively rapidly and then passed away. Uh, we, at that point, I realized two things. Number one, you know, we probably made the wrong choice and, and, and there should have been probably a way to keep him at home and, and he would have been at home longer and happier. And, and, you know, I owe him that, you know, he looked after my parents, you know, after me, you know, end of life, I should have looked better after him. The second thing is I'd, I hated to go to the care home. And in the end, I think as a young, uh, you know, person, you know, embracing life, I kind of re rejected the mere idea of aging and of people dying. And because, you know, that's a famous taboo of death. And so these two elements really, you know, bothered me to say, well, at some point I have to work on that because basically we are, we society neglecting our elders because we, it's a taboo. We just don't want to look at it because, because death is a taboo. And second, we probably don't take care of them well enough. Um, three years ago, I, you know, I was moving towards this aging, you know, a concept saying, well, what could I do in, in that industry, in that uh, space? I read a lot of articles and newspapers about the aging uh, uh, issues in the UK specifically, but you know, across the board. Um, and in the UK, we talk about the social care crisis and the numbers, the figures were compelling. It was really bad. Uh, and I went to interview some doctors, some GPs, some, some families. I mean, both the interviews and the feedback I got, but the numbers I looked at were absolutely compelling. Uh, you know, in the UK, we're talking about uh, 1.5 million older adults who do not get the right support to live at home decently, right? One out of eight do not get support to perform vital tasks, so like bathing or eating or, or getting out of bed and so on. I mean, that, this, is, this is dramatic, right? Um, we we talked to, uh, and I talked to families, and, and we're talking about, five to eight million uh, what we call un, un, um, unpaid caregivers in the UK. So family members, usually the daughter who has three kids, a job, and also is looking after her mother who lives at home and, and is a bit wobbly or has dementia. Well, these families, and I promise, you know, I was talking to them, they were crying in front of me saying, it's such a burden. I don't know how to deal with, you know, the care of mom and, and I love her, but this is so hard. Um, we talked to care professionals and GPs telling us it was a disaster. Like, you know, one out of five beds in, in the UK uh, in hospital uh, is occupied by an you know, older adult um, and, and it shouldn't be. 
It's just because we're admitting them too quickly to the hospital and we can't discharge them from hospitals. So GPs are saying, we don't know how to deal with it. It's a real crisis. And then we talk to uh, caregivers, people who go in the house of all the adults and support them. Well, in the UK, one of four um, home care agency is at the brink of bankruptcy because there's been so many cuts from the local councils, the municipalities that they can't, I mean, they, they can't live anymore. It's not profitable anymore. So when you look at that and when you hear all these feedbacks, like, geez, this is, this is like a massive tension prone and it's going to be only doubling uh, because we have people, we have baby boomers, a lot of them coming to that kind of dependency stage. Um, and the bad news is that they fall sick at the same age, but they die later. So you have a double volume effect, if you wish. So today it's a really bad issue to deal with. And it's going to be only worse in the future. And this really got me to think that we had to find solutions. And so that's how we started Birdie uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, we thought about it six, for, for six months. We, we you know, played around a few concepts and then pitched it and, and raised the money to actually get started with the, with the pilot. Um, and, and the product is, is basically building a, a platform uh, to enable the, the whole care community to deliver better preventative care. Um, and we're talking about all the adults here who are somehow dependent, so they require some uh, uh, caregivers to come uh, by their house once, twice, three times a day to help them you know, eat, bath, uh, get off bed, um, uh, and so on. And usually it's combined with you know, some help from, from their families. And that's where we really saw the greatest issues. And we said, okay, let's work on that first. And let's use technology to uh, help that the whole care community to coordinate much better, but also to deliver a much better care and to work on prevention as well, such as falls or if there's an infection declared and so on and so on. And I'll talk about it. So we started with professional carers who are completely, I mean, they are amazing people, they're really very dedicated, but they're using extremely backwards tools. Uh, to give an example, everything is done on paper. So they go in the house of Mrs. Smith, uh, they check, you know, they write on timesheet when they got in, uh, when they're leaving, they write on the timesheet, a paper timesheet when they're leaving, um, what they did during their visit and how Mrs. Smith was doing and also which medication they gave. Everything is done on paper, which is collected at the end of the month, typed in the Word document, filed into a file filing cabinet is very backwards. So the first step was to say, let's, let's digitize all of that. Uh, you're going to save a lot of time, you uh, home care agencies and caregivers, but also we're going to flag an issue in real time. Um, when you think that one out of three cases, medication is, is not administered the right way, so we give the wrong medicine to an older adult, uh, instead of seeing it two, three months later, you see it right away and you can address the issue right away. So these kind of quick wins, building digital products, uh, could enable us to really significantly increase the quality of the care provided. Second, we said, well, let's bring the family on board. And so we have a care component for the families where they can not only coordinate with the caregivers now when who came when and so on, which makes their life much easier. But we also guide them with a range of support, uh, you know, a helpline with a nurse over the phone, a GP over the phone, specialized transportation, uh, third-party services that we plug in on our platform, plus guide and content on tips uh, and our care manager who can really support families because we know it's so hard. And then the third thing we're doing is we, uh, if, if families and older adults want, we place uh, a connected devices in the house as well. So we're talking about motion sensors here and we're looking at other kinds of hardware that can really detect in a non-intrusive way and passive, so no wearables at this stage, or only partial wearables, uh, detect any issue. Um, so it could be a fall. And so we have a telecare service that's going to be reacting and, and calling uh, through a speakerphone and then uh, call the ambulance if necessary. It could be that, you know, someone has dementia and is a wanderer and at night, if she's outside of the house, you know, someone is warned about that. But it could be also... Uh, by leveraging the power of the data, and that's where health tech is fascinating as a space, that we actually see issues such as infections or decline mobility or depression before a human being. And so we can address the issue earlier. And, and really, that's something that we're starting working on. Um, but the potential is tremendous. Um, Jerry Tristan are telling us we could, we could potentially lower hospital admission on average uh, for someone who has two or more long-term conditions by 20 to 30%. Um, when you think that when someone is being admitted to a hospital, that person will decline rapidly, regardless of what's the infection or the issue, the big 
purpose here. The big goal is to prevent hospital admission by all means. And, and you know, this kind of solution can really help. So really empowering the whole care community, and now we're reaching out to nurses and, and to GPs and so on um, to deliver better care, but also working on tailored preventative care to really um, give to these older adults a longer, healthier life. So I guess in summary then, my understanding of it is that so this is essentially a platform that can do lots and lots of different things, but at its core, what you're doing is you're just enabling people with a, I don't know, small to moderate care requirement to actually have that delivered in their own home. And that's by actual physical people that will go round to help these patients um, in that position. But also you're layering these things on top and that's the platform elements. You're layering on the fact that there's a digital medical record, that there's the potential for connected centers where you can collect that data and help with preventing hospital admissions and all, all those different things so is that have i got that right is that is that essentially what what you're doing yeah yeah i think i think you're right i think you know we are enabling everyone to deliver better care um and so and and also making sure the older adults are safer so yes yeah. it's, it's really enabling them with the right tools and the right services and the right support to make sure they can deliver the best care um that yeah could but also making sure older adults get actually a, a tailored preventative care instead of a kind of standard reactive care. Mm. Now, just to go beyond that, our view is to be agnostic. So, so we really want to become that platform that aggregate, aggregates data and um, you know, digital solutions and hardware from other sources to keep you know, working on that topic of how can we keep an older adult as long and as healthy as possible at home. And that's the vision today. But eventually, for us, really, is to offer a brighter future for any older adult. And the best example is my mom. And, uh, and I'll make sure she listens to that podcast um, since, we, <laughs> we, yeah, since we, uh, we're talking about her. And I was saying, she, she starts thinking about, you know, what, is, uh, what are the next 15 years looking like for her? Uh, because she sees some of her friends uh, who are slightly wobbly. Uh, she knows that, you know, it's usually the curve looks like, I mean, in terms of decline, it's actually rapidly declining and then stabilizing at, at a high level of dependency. And so she's wondering, what can I do to remain as healthy as possible? And, and for me and for us, really the vision here is to say, I need within the next two years to come to my mom and say, I got a solution service to keep you as healthy as possible based on your specific medical and well-being conditions and your aspirations and your needs and your you know, dreams. And, and we'll coach you. We'll coach you to remain as healthy as possible. And it's a totally different narrative than a 35 years old you know, sporty Londoner uh, with a Fitbit. Because here with my mother, she has a couple of conditions already. Um, we know exactly what are the you know, uh, first signs of decline that will come up. And so the question here is how can I coach her as best as possible to avoid that decline, to prevent her from going to the hospital anytime soon, and to really coach her to remain in good health. And that will, the next six months to a year, the way she behaves, or the next, sorry, the next two years, let's say, will shape her next 20 years as an older adult. And that's so exciting as a potential if you reverse that declining curve. Mm. You know, I, I know the exact space you're playing in. I know it from being a doctor. I know it from being a person with family and, and you know, friends and, and friends with, with families that have gone through these things. I know the, the exact space you're playing into, which is a, a lot of, let's just call them your competitors. A lot of, there's a lot of people that startups, companies that are doing the care bit that they're doing the kind of reactive okay these people need x y and z so you can call in certain um, resources to come and help them and get them back to a certain position or you know state of health and then those people will disappear because they're no longer needed hmm. it's that kind of you know it's, it's the same way people think about the NHS, really. When you're ill or you're unwell, you think about going to that and solving the problem and getting you back to where you were. But the bit that you're doing, which I think is actually very interesting, and I actually do buy into your vision here, which is everybody's going to get older gradually. Everybody's going to lose their functions, their, their you know activities of daily living gradually. 
this is all going to be a gradual process. And so what you're saying, which again, I completely agree with, you know, my father ran nursing homes. And so I've seen this, you know, visiting the people in there, you know, that rapid decline of people when they, when they get admitted to somewhere like that can be, you know, extremely evident. And as you, you say, you know, compelling. And what you're doing is, is you're saying, well, this is a, this is going to happen all the time. This is going to happen to people all around the country, all around the world. People are going to get older and they're going to slow down in terms of their functionality. So why isn't there a service which is going as that happens starts propping these people up which is where i see this fitting in it's almost like you're optimizing aging and you're kind of you're you're removing the stigma of being old means you're unwell it's not you're unwell you're just losing these functions and i think calling it you know you know you're not a caregiver are you in 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 the in the vision here you're as you say you're you're just that kind of supplier of of services and you know the platform which has all these different functions which can then prop people up in terms of what they're losing the ability to do so that never is it a case of actually someone getting unhealthy to a point where they need to activate these different services it's more yeah. that these things are just filled in as they decline no, absolutely. You're right. And, and that's the, the end game is exactly that one. And, and you honestly, you summarize it very well, which is we don't, we don't, we don't provide care. We are a companion along the aging journey. Um, and along this journey, we'll come up with the right solution for your needs. And it starts with coaching my mother and what she should be doing now to actually, uh, you know, make sure that the next 20 years look really bright. But over this journey, um, she will need probably some assistive technology in the house. She will need maybe a nurse or, or, or care person that she can call once in a while and maybe at some later at later point she will need a, a caregiver who comes and helps her once in a while um, my job my purpose is to really have all of that fully integrated in one solution but that we push to her over time when she needs it and making sure that you know we really prevent that decline from accelerating and so you're and you're, right. and you're, de- you're demedicalizing it as well and exactly you know yeah, yeah. so it's so it's your because there's a certain stigma isn't there there's a certain stigma to then somebody getting t- of a certain age where they just quite frankly need a bit of support in doing a bit of stuff like yeah. at the end of the day you shouldn't have to then face the stigma of you know requiring a carer and like all you know all of that kind of stigma that goes along with it and i think yeah i no absolutely yeah, I think, yeah. And, and two, two things on that, Jim, I think you, you're absolutely right. And I think, so I think first, there's a huge stigma around aging. I mean, ageism is, is a, wrong, a wrong lingua. And by the way, it doesn't mean anything because it's basically related to condition. But, you know, um, someone who is born today, uh, an English person born today has more than 50% chances to live above 100 to 105 years old. Um, so that's, that's the, the path of aging we're going to be taking, right? You and I, we're going to probably live up to 90 years old, 1995, um, 50% changes or more. So the bottom line is, you know, when we were retired uh, and, and when, you know, actually Bismarck in Germany uh, installed the, uh, the retirement of the pension scheme uh, at 70 years old, the life expectancy was 65 and so if, of course, you know, we talked about retirement and pension and so on and so on. But today, when people live up to 90 or 100 years old, we have to completely change the narrative and, and talk, stop talking about, you know, aging or, or an old adult or silver economy when you just retired at 65, because the vast majority of people are actually in very good health. And that brings two comments. The first one is let's stop the stigma, the stigma on, on the wording we're using and, and the, the word aging and so on. It's about you know, the support required um, and depending on your condition, regardless of your age, and it can start at 45 years old or at 30 years old. And and I think the second thing is the meaning uh, and the purpose. And, And I think that's a different topic, but for us, it's really important also to, you know, not only give the stamina and the grit to all the adults to take control of their own life. Uh, it drives me nuts when someone goes to a hospital for a hip fracture and they give them a, a wheelchair right away although they could actually have been walking again uh, you know, in the next two weeks if they had had the right physio helping them. But no, we give a wheelchair because in any case, you're old and you're going to die soon. And the second thing is how can you have a continuous 
you know, um, um, a professional journey, which can, you know, decrease in terms of workload, but where you still serve society one way or another, where you still have a meaning and you still have a position. And, you know, I, I know we all have the stories of all, you know, uncle or dad, my dad who, who retired uh, three years ago. You know, I, I can see that, you know, this is traumatizing as a person, as a human being, to be in a society where you're not so much useful anymore. And of course, you know, he worked hard and is happy to take some time off. But at some point, in that, you know, 90 to 100 years old, uh, years old expectancy, life expectancy, bringing some purpose and meaning, bringing us a, a sense of, you know, duty or something they can do is so important. And I think that's also what's going to keep them much more alive and, and, and healthy. So these two points of, you know, giving them back control and, and giving them meaning, a role in society is key. Yeah, I can see it. I, I can see the paradigm shift that that you're trying to drive forwards. I can see the culture shift that, that you're trying to drive forwards and that almost you um, almost needs to happen, I guess. So yeah, moving on slightly then. So tell me about the business model. Who's the customer here at the moment and how do you see that changing over yeah. time? No, absolutely. So first step we, and that's where, you know, we, I'm selling you the grand dream, the grand vision, but, but this is <laughs> there's a, a harsh reality at the, in front of our faces. Yeah, now. Exactly. Yeah. Just raised your 7 million series, a AXA and camera are going to be on your back. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're on my back. yeah, no, absolutely. And, and they are, I think, you know, the, the investors we got are great because they are trusting us in the long term and they're really here to support us building that vision and not only, you know, delivering plenty of profit within the next two years. And, and that's really, um, I'm, I'm you know, privileged and grateful of the investors we got, uh, regardless of whether they listen or not to this podcast. Um, <laughs> so the, 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 the way we deal with, with you know, our product for the, for the moment is just we, we start monetizing um, our softwares uh, through the care professional networks. And, and we talk about home care agencies who are, as I said, dealing with paper, highly inefficient processes, lots of operation burden, and we're basically alleviating that with the softwares we got. So we say, hey, scrap the paper, use our solutions, we charge you a monthly fee, um, which in any case is nothing compared to the, uh, you know, the resource and time that you spend to actually collect the paperwork, type it in a Word document and file it. Um, on top of that, you significantly increase the quality of the care that you provide, which is something that most of the agencies are really excited to do, but also that might be recognized by the, the regulatory body, the Care Quality Commission, which does inspection uh, uh, regularly and, and recognizes more and more any initiative to actually deliver better care. So it's, it's only wins for, for the agencies. And that's the reason why, you know, we see a very, you know, a momentum in terms of, you know, acquisition of these agencies and, and selling a product. Now, beyond that, we tell them, hey guys, um, we, we, we're trying to assist you on, on other things to deal with your operations more easily. Um, so, you know, if it's a, a, an inspection from the regulator or if it's, a, a, you know, needs on, on one or the other uh, uh, things that they're doing in operations, we're trying to help them. For us, customer care means way more than just supporting them using our software. It's how can we share best practices and how can we, you know, empower them to become more, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'd say more efficient and, and better uh, quality driven, more quality driven particularly because we're talking plenty of small agencies who do not have always you know the ability to exchange with peers um, and then beyond that we say hey we give the app for free to the families uh, of these older adults you're serving but if they want to upgrade to sensors and hardware and extra services then you know it's an extra charge um, that you can charge or that we body can charge depending on the model um, and again uh, the free version is of the app is to get the report from the carers and so on that's for us really important um, because we want everybody to have access to it. I mean, there's an ethical question here, but if you want to have the census in the house and so on, we got a, a monthly subscription scheme as well for the families to have access to that and really get to the peace of mind they want to have. That's what, how we operate today. Now, moving on, the next step is to go B2C. So that means to build this network of agencies to have all these services available on a platform and to go directly uh, to families um, at a stage where, you know, my mom is a bit wobbly. She had a fall. What am I supposed to do? Well, I go to Birdie and that's where they're basically supporting me in this journey, starting with a bit of technology in the house and maybe a care at some point who will uh, need to step in if I, if I decide so, but in a fully integrated fashion and very tailored and personalized experience. Um, 
And then, and we're looking at different corporate partners to help us accelerate that distribution B2C. And then the third step is, um, and that's a complex one, but, but I, one day I want to knock on the NHS door and say, I have robust evidence that I'm, you know, lowering hospital admission by 15% thanks to our solution. And that's beyond, you know, keeping people much healthier. Um, this is this amount of saving that we're generating for the NHS. How do we partner together? Um, and that's a complex topic because we are the intersection between social care and, and healthcare for the non-UK uh, residents. It's, it's basically two budgets, so two different agendas, but, but still I'm pretty sure that narrative should fly. Mm. I think you're going the right way about it. You know, we said we had our um, we had our sort of HS Health Tech Investor Summit uh, last week, and I gave a talk on sort of how we view the sector. And I think one of the th- you know one of the things I said in there is you know if you want the NHS as a meaningful customer in any sort of capacity, and it's NHS organisations really, not that there is any such thing as the NHS as a whole. It is about going to other markets it is about getting revenue and as you say getting evidence proving that this works because Mm. i've said it on this podcast so many times you know the nhs treats about 1.2 million patients every 36 hours it can't just adopt things that don't have the 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 good grounding evidence behind them whereas if you turn up as a sustainable business with good revenue and a load of evidence behind you with the ability to actually pilot things and, and get things permeated in you stand a much better chance but i also take your point about being at that intersection between health and social care and and, and the budget issues and things i think it's one of those things you know it, it could potentially be an issue but god knows what it, what it's going to look like when, <laughs> when when you come to do that with all the restructures that go on no, I'm, I'm interested in what the market size is for this then um and how you kind of think about that as you were you know planning this business out Mm. well market size of um elderly care as such um broadly speaking is 10 billion pounds in the uk now market which will double in the next uh, 10 to 15 years depending on the forecast Um, so not only the depth of the market is huge but the growth of the market is massive Um, if you look at how much is spent on care professional care services uh, numbers vary a lot but we're talking about three to five billion pounds per year Um, and again this will going will be probably doubling in the next 15 years Um, so so big market um, um, just if you look at at the care uh, uh, industry Um, now beyond that the market is much broader if you look not only at a younger segment of uh, younger generation so as i said you know my mom that whom i want to coach and if you look at um, non-care services because we know that typically a family needs more assistance and support um, we know at granular level what's the willingness to pay for that we know the magnitude of of the problem so the number of people concerned as i said you know it's between five and ten million people in the uk um, but we don't have a market size today because this kind of service does not exist or is basically publicly provided provided by public services but in a very scattered fashion Mm, that makes sense but when you've got a 10 billion social care market that's going to double in the next 10 years you can sort of see how being front of the queue for this new paradigm that you're looking to build if it is going to take off you, you guys are going to certainly be front of the queue um so that leads me nicely on then to a word that you mentioned quite a while ago in this podcast and you've mentioned it a couple of times which is the word potential so you see you must see such a huge potential for something like this but also the way that this must integrate and play into the hands of of the other startups that are surrounding you and and everything that you guys together are doing in this sector the potential must be enormous because it feels to me like there's so much distance to go there's so much to be improved on that the potential must be enormous Uh, yeah I i think and that brings two points i think one is it's kind of a, a paradox between the, 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 I'd say, the number of needs that we see. It's, it's not like small pain points or nice to have. Uh, it's really a massive crisis that we're trying to address. And the pain points are extremely big and mm. really we can feel them. At the same time, it's a very complex industry, uh, plenty of stakeholders, uh, public, private, uh, um, highly scattered, fragmented, um, not enough money. Um, this kind of you know, 
conversation of is it supposed to be funded by public sector which doesn't have the means to do that and then you know or is it supposed to be private so i think many startups are operating in this industry realizing we're solving a huge pain point but actually getting to actually sell and and grow is hard um so potentially huge the question is what's your cunning strategy to get there um and and i think we've all tried different things and and some work some work less so um but but it's really what's your go to market um and paying very close attention to you to your economics um you know typically cost of acquisition versus ltv or or things that make a lot of sense and are, require a lot of attention in this specific industry because you can get lost easily um the second point is we're all working on these things i think healthcare or health tech specifically has a tremendous potential for integration it doesn't work if you work in silo i don't believe in the winner takes all um, in healthcare i don't think that's going to work uh, so i don't think it's going to be a uber discussion it's going to be more integration discussion and that's where in the uk we're talking about interoperability or common standards uh, of data and so on it's there's a multitude of of ongoing systems being used uh by different providers and and healthcare providers and practitioners um some of them will disappear some of them will will come in uh but eventually you're going to have a landscape of several solutions fully integrated with each other with full interoperability that means you know the data being transferred from one to another very easily and swiftly depending on the wish of the customers and i think that's a healthy ecosystem if you really want to foster innovation and accelerate the adoption as well so i'm quite excited about that potential particularly in europe/uk i absolutely agree and actually you know what we see on our accelerator is we have quite a lot of ecosystem partners that do lots of different things you know we've got primary care providers we've got obviously investors and things at that end but we've got quite a lot of kind of ancillary services to the health sector and to startups these all these different things and the best startups that come into our accelerator what they do is they have a look at our ecosystem they have a look at all the mentors and then they start piecing everything together like a jigsaw and they start mm-hmm. adding in these different companies and different services and different bits and they start adding on to what their core offer is and then they might partner with like a big organization like a big primary care provider or something to then extract you know a certain part of their deal flow or pathways or like all these different or pipelines you know all these different things and the best startups are doing that and they talk exactly like you do you know that when you look around your competition might not be your competition at all you might be adjacent in the sector and you that you know you might be able to share things that actually double your offering rather than you guys going at loggerheads and i agree with this interoperability bit as well that if people can can get talking and, and solve a bigger problem for at the end of the day the customer where it's not just their solution but actually it's things that they've become interoperable with that form some sort of bigger um solution to a much bigger problem that these people have it's yeah. more likely to make a sale and make a difference and i think that's so important no i absolutely agree with you and i think you know the depth of the market the, the size of healthcare is so huge that you don't need to win it all and it's a losing strategy i agree uh, yeah I agree so much. Um, so, so I guess then, so you're sort of you're pioneering in a few different ways. But how do you view being an organisation in health, doing what you're doing, being so kind of socially aware as as you are, and driven by impact and all these different things, and and having run so many social enterprises? How are you kind of bringing all of that thinking and learning into now a for profit business in health? Yeah. Um, so there's a few things to say there. First, I think a the concept of social enterprise is very broad and has been, you know, abused also and the wording has been, you know, very very confusing for many people. But I think um I'm firmly convinced after having worked, you know, in large international organizations, is small non-for-profits uh, for the government and for large corporations and startups that a startup environment or a small lean environment is the best vehicle to deliver social impact um and and i have a few reasons for that i can go at length and talk at length about that but the fact that we you know try to serve a, a social mission which is eventually to improve people's life must have a monetization potential but our ambition birdy is to radically improve the life of 1 million old adults within the next 5 years and that's what the whole team lives and breathes by i mean everyone you, you would ask anyone in the team they would repeat exactly the same sentence but we want to do that with the financial means to accelerate our growth 
And, and that virtuous combination is very compelling. And I, I think really social enterprises are the right vehicle because not, non-for-profits very often are just struggling to fundraise and they're dedicating all the operations to that. And in the end, they are being distracted from the core objective. Large organizations or large international institutions are embedded in bureaucracy and, and it's really hard to actually you know, get the ball moving. And governments, I mean, I'm not going to talk about governments, uh, I think we, we know. Um, and so I, I think really having a small agile team like ours to work on a problem which has many different aspects and trying to really move fast to address these different issues uh, within the problem is, is fascinating and really can serve the noble mission of saying we want to impact this number of millions of old adults in the future, um, but with all the freedom that, we, that is required to be agile and lean and, and act fast and move fast with highly skilled people who are firmly committed to the mission. And so I'm very excited about what we're doing right now because I can feel that and I can you know, really um, uh, grasp the, uh, the speed and the commitment of the team. And, and I really believe that this is the best vehicle to deliver as fast as possible a systemic impact on society. Now, beyond just a social mission, I am firmly convinced that shaping something from scratch is a massive opportunity to design an organization of the future. And we at Birdie, we're very excited about that. Um, so we're looking at everything that's being done uh, and we're also looking at what we want to do to be a role model as an organization for the future because we believe that basically capitalism or neoliberalism has left aside many externalities that corporations do not take into account such as climate change or inequality or community and so we believe that we need to shape that from scratch and we need to be by design an organization that takes into account these externalities. And so to give you a couple of examples, of course, you know, climate change. So we measure our environmental costs direct and indirect, and we try to offset that uh, one way or another. Um, we also believe that volunteering in the community is absolutely critical. So we're committed to 500, 500 hours of volunteering as an organization during working hours, uh, office working hours. Um, we believe that you know, health and, and well-being at work is be important, plenty, putting plenty of, of uh, initiatives in place for that. Um, and so we have a series of initiatives that we uh, decided and we jointly, we had a workshop together, jointly decided to, uh, uh, to, to take uh, uh, and implement. And, and that basically reflects who we are as an organization. We also are adhering you know, to Patagonia uh, uh, principles. We're trying to be B Corp certified and, and we are in this process right now. Um, but beyond that also, we strongly believe in the mission that uh, you know, an organization is exciting to work for if it has a purpose, if it's a place to learn, and if you have all the autonomy you need, the three things. And so we really believe in the mission, number one. we putting in place everything that's required for our team members to learn and grow in their own trajectory and they decide that. So they set their trajectory, we discuss it together, um, and then they tell us what they need in terms of resource, uh, uh, coaching, uh, training, uh, and whatsoever to actually get there. And then the autonomy is key, and that's where we completely flip over the model of, of you know, management. So we don't see ourselves as managers, but coaches. And we believe that we all know where we have to go. We have objectives and key results by quarter. If you need help, come and ask for help. But otherwise, everybody's a CEO, everybody's an entrepreneur. We know where we're going. And, and we don't want to spend plenty of time micromanaging. And so the whole organization is completely flat. All salaries are transparent. All equity is transparent. Everybody knows whoever, uh, whatever uh, someone else is doing. And that gives a great vibe to the organization because people are committed and excited because they feel that they're fully autonomous. So this is a kind of things we're putting in place. And, and this is just the start of the journey. But I'm firmly convinced that we have an obligation to be a role model for the organizations of the future where corporations of the present have failed um, to deliver on a certain number of aspects. I think you're going to get a few people message you after this podcast asking <laughs> to work for you. <laughs> well, we hire. Um, <laughs> I imagine you're hiring because of your, your 7 million round, right? So you must be hiring right now. Yeah, absolutely. We do. Um, I, you know, just to summarize from what, for a, a little bit, that I, I just think this is a wonderful example of a forward-thinking company in a forward-thinking area in a in a space within health tech that that is underloved, that is underserved, and I think does need 
technology companies like yourself coming in and and really helping older people get older right there's so many things that can be done and i think you're in a really great space doing a really great thing and i think the way you're running your company sounds fabulous um and i certainly think there'll be a few people get in touch with you this podcast is actually listened to in 44 countries as of this morning um so i think you might get a couple of offers um but max listen this has been this has been thoroughly enjoyable um there's so much more i, I would love to talk to you about particularly about your climate change and deforestation days um but we can probably take that up when I start a different podcast on stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, uh, be my cool. guest. <laughs> no, that sounds great. Um, cool. So, look, the way we end these podcasts is um, I'll hand back over to you basically just to summarize a bit about yourself, a bit about Birdie and where you're at, um, and just close us out with any asks that you've got of our audience. I'm Max. Um, I'm a social entrepreneur and I'm the CEO of Birdie. And Birdie is a uh, startup looking after the elderly and trying to keep them at home as long and as healthy as possible. Um, we need uh, people to join our crew and achieve a massive uh, social impact. Uh, we need people to connect us to the uh, geriatricians and um, all the adults and elderly experts of the world uh, to build the best company ever to, to help these older adults live better. Perfect. And how can people get in touch with you? It's very easy. It's um, info at birdie.care. Max, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time also.